Many, many times on this podcast, I've mentioned that I practice martial arts, I practice judo. And at this point in my life, I've become basically a teacher. I'm not a competitor anymore. I don't do tournaments and things like that. But I still teach and I still participate in every class. I still fight the whole time uh, because I find that's the only way I can stay healthy. I don't do really much other exercise. If I quit, I will start to gain a lot of weight because I don't think I'm going to change my lifestyle in any significant way. Something I realized is that if I am a successful martial arts teacher, I'm actually making my own life exponentially more difficult because I'm taking people who couldn't beat me in a fight and putting them in a position where they could beat me in a fight. And that actually doesn't seem like a really good idea. It seems like as a martial arts teacher, you actually would always want to hold stuff back. Like that one move that you never show anyone that you could pull out in an emergency. Now, I don't think any real martial arts teacher would do that unless they are a comically bad character like they would have in movies and TV shows and stuff. But it did make me think about kung fu movies in a system where they always had one move could trump some other move, and they always had a secret move that you could use that would basically always defeat your opponent. The kung fu system in films, so certainly not in real life because that's not how it works, but the kung fu system in films was a really, really bad idea because to prove that your school of training or your style of martial art was superior, they always ended up having a fight to the death. And this meant the top-level martial artists was cut in half probably annually. So let's say you have 10 great martial artist teachers in the world. And they run up against each other. Half of them have to kill the other half. And then those five that are left, well, half of those guys have to kill each other until you have one guy left who is the greatest martial artist in the world. The problem is all the other guys were good, at least, and they can't teach new people anymore. As a system, it actually diminishes returns because anyone who gets to any level where they're any good now has a 50% chance of dying because they have to battle some other teacher from another school to prove that their school is the greatest in the world. But that means that person isn't training new people. My thinking is the quality of martial arts in this world would diminish over time. So if you had someone from the far past come to the present, they would be able to beat the shit out of everyone who actually practices because they've actually trained against or with other high-level martial artists. Anyone beyond that point then would start to die and they would start to kill off anyone who was any good. And one teacher, as good as they might be, probably can't raise up enough people to maintain one style forever. My conclusion here is that martial arts movies, kung fu movies specifically, maybe have not come up with the best way to create a sustainable system of martial arts. 
For our question, is it hypocritical for people who lock their homes to oppose the Trump border wall? So it took me a moment to really interpret and understand this question properly because the question is saying, if you are a liberal who doesn't think we should have a border wall, why do you lock your doors because the world is so safe? But they're missing the first point is maybe you don't think Mexicans are the threat. Maybe you think other Americans are the threat. So a border wall isn't necessary, but certainly a wall between me and the outside American society at large is a necessity for my own safety. If you oppose the border wall, doesn't mean you think the world is safe and perfect and you anyone could just be able to travel anywhere. Perhaps you understand that a lot of people believe that the border wall is ineffective anyways. So there's no reason to spend money on something that is basically ineffective. If I live in the northern part of the United States, the border wall isn't changing anything about where I live. Let's say Mexico is a threat. Hypothetically, let's create that. Now Mexico is everything that Trump says it is, and they're sending these people over. You build a border wall. If I live in Detroit, a city in North America that is famous for a fairly high crime rate, not locking my door because there's a border wall doesn't protect me from the actual problems in the society I live in immediately. And that's where the question starts to fall apart. They are expanding one thing to the whole nation. America being such a big country, the problems of one state or one area won't be the same as other states. Trump is making it sound like people are pouring in through the border, which we know is factually incorrect. He's also making it sound like those people pouring across the border are all drug dealers, all murderers, all rapists, which we also know is incorrect. But even if you manage to stem that flow of crime, that wouldn't change the situation in cities that are really far away from the border anyways. So this is a premise that is weak from its conception to its execution because one does not solve the problem of the other. Because even if you did build a border wall, it wouldn't solve the problems, the societal problems that exist within America, which is why people who live in America feel it's necessary to lock their doors. Core question, Canada and the U.S. have many similarities. So before I continue with the actual question, that's a statement as laid out in the question. So Canada and the U.S. have many similarities. To me, that actually already indicates this was written by an American because no Canadian I know would actually make that statement. They would acknowledge the similarities that exist, but they would never use that as a premise. So that seems to be already one of the big differences between Canadians and Americans. Americans think we're the same, whereas Canadians really define themselves by being different from America. So to me, already I'm suspicious that this has been written by an American. So Canada and the U.S. have too many similarities. Too many. I didn't, I actually found that a bit weird as well. How can you have too many similarities? Really, it seems like you should be saying they are very similar countries. Uh, I, again, I agree. We have a lot of similar culture. But anyways, on with the question. Canada and the U.S. have too many similarities. If they merge, the new country would be the largest in the world in terms of power, economy, and area. Why don't Canada and the U.S. merge? Now, this question actually makes a lot of sense. You have two Western countries where they speak the same language and they have a lot of cultural similarities. It seems like they should be able to get along really well. Why don't they become one country and become the single most powerful country in the world? But I think, again, what this American 
question asker is missing are the differences. Because it's the differences that would actually make it more important and more difficult. Because which government would take over ruling both nations as one? Because I'm betting the question asker of this is assuming it's the American government. The American government would just then suddenly absorb all the Canadian provinces and we would just start living under American rule. That's something that very few Canadians would agree to. We don't like the American political system. We have strong preferences. And one of the biggest differences between America and Canada is the very, very liberal nature of Canada as a country. Again, they are using socialist as a bad word in America. I actually did a segment on this. It was about how America uses the word socialism, but they're actually equating it to old school communism, which they actually equated to old school evil. But Canadians would not want to adopt the American government. They certainly wouldn't want to adopt social service from America like healthcare. Canadians have pretty good healthcare. They're pretty happy with it. They consider it better than the American system. So the Americans couldn't come in and then, and then privatize all these systems that are in place that Canadians are quite happy with. Canada pays huge amounts of taxes for these social services. People always complain about taxes, but I bet if you propose the American system where they seem to pay just as many taxes but don't get the same services, that most Canadians would say no. They would disagree with it. So I think if you were going to rephrase this question, it's actually a question that's come up a few times because it's why doesn't America take over Canada? Why doesn't America invade Canada? Uh, America could defeat Canada so easily. Why don't we do it? Really, the question is, why doesn't the U.S. absorb Canada? Because that would lead to a war between the two countries, and America doesn't actually want that. This is trying to make it sound peaceful. It's trying to say, these two countries are the same already anyways. Why don't they just join and become even stronger? Again, the too many similarities part is where I think the question is actually incorrect and inaccurate. The differences are the significant reason why the two countries do not work closer together. I mean, you have to look. Canadians voted in Trudeau. Americans voted in Trump. That in itself is showing that there are not a lot of similarities. One of the most liberal leaders in the world versus one of the most, I'm even afraid to say conservative because he's not conservative. Trump is sort of an entity in itself. But you can guarantee that Trump would not get into office in Canada. It just would not happen. Of course, I'm saying that now. Who knows, 10 years from now, might be a totally different situation and Trump becomes Canadian and then becomes prime minister because that seems to be the world we live in. But a theory I have actually proposed in the past is that if America invaded Canada in any way, in any real way, the result would be the world coming to Canada's aid. And I think this would be the impetus to unite the whole world against America, create a single unified government. Because as America thinks it could beat every country in the world, it couldn't beat every country in the world at the same time. And the unified force of the... Uh, where am I going? I've totally just lost the plot, if I'm being honest. I'm talking about that Red Dawn scenario now, only America's... Well, the original one was China, and then I think it was North Korea. Yeah, it just doesn't make sense. I've lost it. I've gone into 80s movie territory, so you know I should stop talking. I had a weird thought, and it actually stems from my knowledge of video games. And it, but it seems like it's going to be applicable to the world at large very soon. So uh, it came when I heard about Tesla cars getting a software update. 
And I realized that if a car is primarily controlled by a computer or computer software, that means the performance of that car will be dependent on what version of software you have. So this could be the same as rooting your phone or just going with the standard updates to standard updates that come out regularly. But what it means is that when a new car or a new phone or a new thing comes out that isn't reflective of its performance a year later because they may have found ways to improve it. So I do updates on my phone primarily because I know a lot of those updates actually increase the battery life. So one of the things I feel that the future is going to have, phones are fine. It's going to be very hard to improve on the screen quality and the ability of phones as they are right now. You can make them faster. You can give them more memory. But what we really need more than anything else is longer battery life. I want to be able to charge my phone and keep it going for, let's say, a week without charging it again. I probably charge it every day anyways, but the ability to not have to do that would be very appealing. I remember my first flip phone when I came to Japan. I charged it twice a week and it would last. But of course, all I was ever really doing was taking phone calls and texting on it. So the actual usage of the phone was very minimal or very simple compared to what a smartphone does today. But this means reviews of products actually need to be reiterated with every iteration of the software update. So let's say I buy a car that is primarily software driven. It's one of the first AI uh, self-driving cars. Now I get the car and I find it drives very slow or it uh, is not as efficient as I would like, or it finds really bad parking spots, things like that. That would be my initial review. But then as the software is updated, let's say six months later, there's a software update and all those things are improved. That means I have to either revisit or re-release my review to reflect the update so that the information is accurate. But then the question is, do you scrub your earlier review? Now I'm trying to figure out how reviews can really work in the future and still be honest because you don't want to take away your initial impression or observations about the product, but you want to be fair and honest and add to it. So now reviews almost would need to be ongoing processes. So you would have your initial review and then the first update would come out and you would basically say this has improved it or this has made it worse. So maybe it's made the parking system worse. Maybe it's, made, maybe it's really improved it. Because this is the kind of thing that's happened in a few video games. There was a game called No Man's Sky, and it was supposed to be this thing where you go from planet to planet, and each planet you can gather resources and try to build a better ship and get to a planet that's farther away. And I believe the goal was to get to the center of the universe. And they said this game was so big, it's going to be online, but it's going to be so big you're never going to actually encounter other players. Uh, and then they talked about base building and all this other stuff. It turned out the actual game upon release was quite dull and people weren't very people were really disappointed because they had made such grandiose promises that they could never actually live up to those promises. But now a year later that game has been updated and a lot of the promises they talked about initially they've actually managed to they said other players would be in the universe but you'd never be able to meet them because you'd always be too far away. But of course the very first thing that two players did who were friends was figure out where one was and where the other was and then get to another place where they both knew they were and they couldn't find each other which meant they weren't in the same game. But now that can happen. You can actually meet other players in the game. The re initial review would actually tell you maybe don't buy the game because they didn't keep any of their promises. Whereas now, a year later, all those promises technically have been kept. It just took longer than initially expected. So should you update the initial review? Should you add to it? Or should you make a whole new review completely? Now, video games die off quickly. 
After about a year, most video games would be forgotten completely. So that's not really a relevant thing. But cars and a lot of other products don't. A car is something you buy and you keep it for 10, 15, 20 years maybe. Same with other products like fridges and stuff. So if I'm looking at a car, I might look at an older model to save money, but I might actually be pushed towards that model because the updates are so good that the car itself is actually technically improved. The same could be said of, let's say, a fridge. I bought a fridge when we got our house. We've had that same fridge the whole time. We don't really intend on changing that fridge until it breaks or something goes wrong. But what year the fridge was made was less relevant to me than the actual ability of the fridge to do its job. So if fridges in this system start getting like massive amounts of software where they keep track of your food and are connected to the internet and order food for you and all the things they've talked about fridges being able to do in the future. Software updates will actually change the value and performance of the fridge itself. So if I start looking for a new fridge, one of, let's say a smart AI powered fridge, I would need to know if there have been software updates and the iterations of the review to be able to better make a choice as to whether which fridge I should buy. So that's a very convoluted way. I used to write video game reviews, so this was something that actually was kind of important to me personally because I was always trying to find a way to be really honest because if I didn't like a game, I knew my opinion of it would be lower, but that doesn't mean it's a bad game, so I tried to communicate that in my review. But now I'm thinking, yeah, let's say I play a game and the new and updates come out and the nature of the game has changed. Maybe I would like it better or maybe someone else would like it worse. You need to talk about those changes and how they would actually affect the player. But this now extrapolates into the world at large where you're talking about basically everything that's going to be connected by a computer, which, as we've seen in the next generation or two, is going to be most things. So software iterations are going to be just as important as the actual product itself in the future. Hey, sexy friend. He's making me his bitch. Thank you for listening. If you have questions or comments, you can tweet at VelociPeter or email VelociPodcast at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, or go to velocipeter.com slash podcast. Maybe you have not come up with the best way to create a sustain- to create a sustainable system of martial arts.